Hey, how many of you are accustomed to reading ahead in the text as we're getting into this narrative? Anybody? <clears throat> okay, well, then you know the task we got in front of us. Four chapters, seven, eight, nine, ten, <clears throat> and dealing with the plagues. So at one point, it can look like too much, and then if you look at the context of the passage, it might look like no fun. And so that's what I have in front of us today. And so I plan to just read some and talk some. There's possible, no possible way that we can read all of this in one sitting. And I know this um, if we're not careful. The story of, of Exodus and the particulars of the narrative, especially as we break it down week from week from week and we make poignant points each week, sometimes we can go so much into the point we miss the big idea. And so it's really essential as we build on our understanding of what God's doing with God's people and his intentions uh, that we don't forget the big idea. So let me just throw it out there and work on the big idea before we study the story and, and make our uh, points on the, on the lesson. Um, I want to give you the why of this story. And it's the same why of, of all of these uh, particular narratives. Uh, we have, like I said, four chapters, 121 verses, and nine plagues that I get to deal with. And next week, uh, Neil is going to do uh, the Passover, which is cherry picking for Neil. Um, uh, but either way, that's, that's what's in front of us. So if we're not careful, we're going to just see all the minutiae of all these plagues and kind of forget everything. But let me, let me give you the, the why. Um, if you've got your Bibles, uh, I want you to turn to chapter 6 of Exodus. And by the way, I've told the uh, pro-presenter people not to put any passages up today. There's just way too much. And we're all going to see like nothing but flashing lights um, with this many passages. So if you want to, and you want to follow me and chase me with your Bible, that's the way to do it. Otherwise, just listen. Um, but here we are in uh, chapter 6 of Exodus. And I'm going to give you the why. And the first reason why of this text is for Israel's sake. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, this is what he is saying here. I talked to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I made a promise to them, okay? They, they heard it in form of what I would do. Moses, you're about to see what I am doing. One is a promise given, one is a promise kept. And this is the promise kept portion of the passage. In other words, I'm doing it for Israel's sake so that you can see me. I'm going to develop your faith in me. And that's what he tells us. Then he says in verse 4, I will also establish my covenant with them to give them a land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groaning, my people. So why is God doing this? Because he's listening to his people. And he knows their suffering. So he wants to show himself to them and he wants to deal with their suffering. And then he says this in the last part of verse five, and I have remembered my covenant. You want to know why? Because God made a promise and God's going to keep his promise. And all of it is for the sake of his people, Israel. That's one why. But there's another aspect to why of this passage, and that is that it's for Pharaoh and Egypt's sake. If you, if you recall where this kind of engagement with Egypt and Pharaoh started, when God says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to, to, to let my people go, Pharaoh's response was kind of absurd, but exposure. Who? I don't know your God. I don't know God. I don't know anything about a God. And he kind of just blew it off. Well, Pharaoh and Egypt are about to get a lesson the hard way. In fact, this is the many times it, it, it repeated over and over in the text why God is doing it, the purpose of why God is doing it. In chapter 7, verse 5, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
In chapter 7, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. In chapter 8, verse 10, so that you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. You want to skip to verse, uh, what would be 14 in chapter 9, so that you would know that there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 10, that you may know that I am the Lord. You get what God's trying to do here. He's got a big grand vision for his people. But there is an obstinance and a stubbornness and a false idol worship in Egypt, and he's coming after them too. He said, you're going to know when this is all said and done, all these amazing things that I'm about to do amongst you, this suffering you're going to endure now, you won't, you won't have any problem knowing who I am then. So he's doing it for Egypt's sake and, and Pharaoh's sake. And the last thing I want you to see is that ultimately he's doing it for his sake. The text in all of scripture, the psalmist says that God is great and greatly to be praised. That's what it tells us, and it is true. All of this, all of this narrow, uh, this narrative is about the greatness of God on display. If you read this and don't come away and say, my God is awesome more than I can even say, you're missing the point, but that's his point with it. He wants us to know that, that it's all for his praise. Chapter 9, verse 16, he makes it clear. Abundantly clear. But for this purpose, I've raised you up, talking about Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. That's praise. What's going to happen with this story is my reputation is going to just run. And people will talk. And they will say, I remember what, what God did to the Egyptians. That will be the story. So for Israel's sake, this is the why. For Egypt's sake and Pharaoh's sake and for God's sake. That's why this narrative is here. So you know what file to put it in? Um, and that's really the point of all of this story. It's the point of all of Scripture. It's for God's praise, for who he is and how he does things and, and who he loves. So I've got a question. I think it's worth saying before we get into the particulars of the text because I want to hold you accountable to it. Are you okay with God getting his glory how he wants to? You were like, I'm not certain how I'm supposed to answer that. Look at me. Are you okay with God getting his glory how he wants to? Okay, I'm going to hold you to that because these things might make you feel uncomfortable because that's what he's about, his, his glory. So let's, let's do this. Let's just read, talk through these particular plagues and then we'll wrap it up with some, some obvious lesson, lessons learned. Let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 28. I know we've been there already, but we're going to run in, in context into chapter 7 all the way to verse 7 as a setup to this. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And we've already talked about this, that Moses had an insecurity problem about his speech and his lack of authority and who am I to stand before Pharaoh. And so God dealt with all that. But nonetheless, verse 1, chapter 7, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you, the text says, like God to Pharaoh. It actually says in the original language, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Not like God, but I've made you God to Pharaoh. In other words, he's saying, when you get before Pharaoh, you will have authority and he will know it. When you stand there, he won't be confused that you're just some kind of slave representative. He's going to know you have authority. There'll be a demeanor in Pharaoh that responds to you like God. Does it make sense? Okay. And you and your brother shall be, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his, out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. <clears throat> and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
And I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83. That's how this story starts. And, and before we get into the plagues, there's a moment where Moses comes before Pharaoh, and I'm certain if you've read this, you're familiar with this prove-it moment. You know? When, when, when Pharaoh asks you to show your authority, your power, here's what I want you to do. Tell Aaron to throw down his staff, and it will turn into a snake. He does that in the very presence of Pharaoh. And he throws down his, his staff. It turns into a snake, and I don't know. I don't know about you, but somewhere in this, you've got to ask yourself the questions. How many of these little magic tricks would it take for you to go, okay, something's going on here. I need to stop and ask some questions, some fundamental questions about God and what I believe and who's, who's got the power and what's going on. But the text tells us clearly that the Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the, the uh, magicians of the land to kind of perform the same trick. And so some have said, you know, well, this is just a sleight of hand deal um, because the wise men aren't described as being there when, when Aaron threw down his staff. Most, uh, Pharaoh told them that that's what happened. So come with a snake trick. And so it was kind of a sleight of hand. Some have suggested it's got snake charming, that if you hold a cobra in a certain way, it kind of paralyzes them and they stiffen up. And then when you throw them on the ground, I'm going to suggest to you those are all kind of natural ways to explain, to explain the supernatural. I think these magicians are doing it by the power of Satan. As we will see over and over again in these next few um, plagues that, that show themselves. And here's what we are going to see again, over and over again. Satan cannot create anything. All he can do is emulate. So it's no wonder that when they show up, what they try to do is kind of keep up with God by emulating the snake trick, to somehow thwart that there is a God that should be submitted to. They just kind of blow it off. Now, it's important for us to know that, that there's more going on than just some kind of illustration with a snake. God is saying something about the idolatry of Egypt. Because Egypt, as you'll see in a pattern that we're going to get into this morning, had an idolatry problem, and the serpent was a symbol of Pharaoh's authority and sovereignty. The Egyptians worshipped the snake. So God throws their idol on the ground and tells it to crawl in the dust before Pharaoh. So what's the conclusion to this amazing little story, this beginning before the plagues? Verse 13, conclusion, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or became hard. <clears throat> No turning, no recognition, nothing whatsoever, just whatever, I'm not listening. And so God then begins to up the ante and bring the pressure to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Here's the first plague, chapter 7, verse 14. It's the plague of the Nile turning into blood. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is a Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking the water. And the text goes on to say it wasn't just the river, that vessels that contained water in Egypt all turned to blood. So just imagine your water supply just going blood. That's what God did in their presence. And it all happened as, just as God said. 
But here we go. Here's the magicians. They show up and somehow, somehow they pull off the same trick. Again, only emulating, never creating. But, but notice this. It's somewhat of a self-judgment. Because the curse is the blood, right? The, the, the water supply turning to blood. But what Satan does is contribute to the problem. He doesn't make anything better. He just adds more blood. So if you ever want to know a pattern of Satan, whenever he gets involved, he just makes things worse. He doesn't make things better. And clearly he does it for the people in Egypt. They show off supposedly their competing power, but all they do is bring more suffering to the, to the people. Does that make sense? So... Again, God was going after the blasphemy of Egypt. The Nile was considered the lifeblood of the, of the country. It was, uh, life came through the river. Life was by the river. Um, the Egyptians worshiped the river as their creator and sustainer of life. God was saying something. Do you understand? Again, just like an ax, chopping at a tree, taking down the idols, and he's going after everything they believed in. What's the conclusion? Verse 22 and 23. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he wouldn't listen to them So the Lord, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into the house, and he did not even take this into heart. That was the conclusion of an amazing moment. Here's the second plague. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It is frogs everywhere, okay? And the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. That's an interesting thing to bring on a bunch of people. Then I will, shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into the house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and in your ovens and your kneading bowls. Your microwave ovens. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And what we know from the text is the magicians showed up and did the same thing and just made things worse, brought more frogs. <laughs> Impressive. Okay, again, God is making a point beyond just bringing Pharaoh and Egypt to its knees to release the people of God. He's confronting the idols of Egypt. In fact, in fact, many people who've studied the antiquity of Egypt would say they have many, 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 many forms of deity. And one of the forms of deity was actually a goddess in the form of a frog. Head of a frog, body of a frog. And this, this goddess was, they, they believed, assisted in childbirth and was responsible for breathing life into the body. So if they felt that way and suddenly now here is what they believe to be deity underfoot in your bread bowl everywhere and you're going, I don't want this deity anymore. I don't want this anymore. You get what God was doing. He was pulling the rug out from underneath their religious observances as well as bringing them to their knees with Israel. And he did that. Now, when would you tap? When would you go, oh, okay, I'm done? I think that's a good question to just mull over in our mind. But it's interesting as the text goes on to say, and I think it's particularly important um, that God put it in here. Moses asks a question I don't think I would have asked. He looks at Pharaoh and says, okay, I know you want the frogs gone because you're pleading with me. Tell me when you'd like them to go. Now, what would your answer be? Now? Frogs in bread bowls, bad. Now would be my preference. Pharaoh, after thinking about it, says, tomorrow. Let's do it tomorrow. Now, maybe he possibly thought, well, maybe this thing will just explain itself away by natural uh, order. Like, they'll just disappear. They'll go back to the water. And I won't have to submit myself to anything. Maybe this will just go away. But it made me think of, of something about our own lives. 
It reminds me that whenever we plan to obey God tomorrow, it's a sign of worldly sorrow today. Only true repentance makes you go, now. God, I see it as wrong. I see it as sin. But you know this about Pharaoh's heart. It said already a couple times, his heart is stoned to God. And it'll be stoned for four more chapters to God. And there is no way possible he would have said today. I don't want God today. And some of us in here, to be honest with you, you're feeling the consequence of the weight of your stupid decisions. But you won't say today. You won't say uncle. You're waiting for something else to sort it out, to fix it. But I want you to know that uh, if you plan to obey tomorrow, you are not truly godly sorrow. You are struggling with worldly sorrow. And there's another story, another sermon about that. Nevertheless, look at the conclusion of this particular plague. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, okay, Moses prayed, frogs are gone, he hardened his heart and he wouldn't listen to them. You know the rhythm. Let's pick up the third plague. This one is uh, the plague of gnats. The text says, many, many say it's more than gnats, that it's lice. Uh, that the, the bug isn't just a pesty bug in your face, but one that got in your skin, got in your hair, got all over all the animals. Regardless, either way, God brought it. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it will become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And it happened. Everywhere. Everywhere. And here's an interesting turn in the narrative. So far, we've seen the magicians and the sorcerers and the wise men of Egypt stand up and somehow bring a competition to the, to the things that God was doing. Here, they run out of gas. They got nothing left. They, they have nothing to offer, and their conclusion, interesting enough, is to say to Pharaoh, it's the finger of God. <laughs> we, we can't do that. That's the finger of God. Again, it's interesting how God is making his point uh, to the idols and the, the blasphemy of Egypt. Egypt believed that Pharaoh was deity. They, they believed that Pharaoh had the power to control and maintain cosmic order, to put everything and hold it to place and to work out. And, and it's going nuts right now. And so who's responsible for it going nuts? And so you see God chopping away at the, the idols and the blasphemy of Egypt. And they're realizing what they're dealing with. Nevertheless, look at verse 19. Here's the conclusion. But Pharaoh hardened. His heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them. So, um, brutal. Let's, let's look at the fourth plague. This is the plague of flies. Verses 20 and 21, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that, we may, that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send a swarm of flies on you and your servants and your people and in your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and they shall also be on the ground on which you stand. Many writers suggest this isn't just a household fly, it's a dog fly, a blood-sucking fly, flies that bite. Um, these flies live in Texas, by the way. Um, <laughs> I happen to know that. Um, brutal, right? Everywhere. Can't take a step on the ground. They're under your feet. They're in your house. They're, they're in your servants' quarters. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Would you stop? Would you quit? Would you say, I recognize it's, it's got to be God. I, I'm not God. I can't do that. Our magicians can't do that. Would you ever, would you ever quit? Of course, I think we would, but nevertheless, they don't. And something else interesting happens in this particular plague. Um, I want you to notice a distinction. Verse 22 and 23. It says here, um, 
Let me get to the verse. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. This is where Israel, uh, the people dwelt. So that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in their midst. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Okay, if you're paying attention to gospel narratives, what you have right here is the grace of God goes to God's people. When God does this miracle in Egypt and withholds it from his people, he's showing you grace. He's showing you how he performs towards his kids. He gives his kids grace. We're going to see this several times here, but he does that narrative and this little picture with, with Egypt and Israel. Again, the story goes on. Uh, Pharaoh is obviously tired of the flies, and he suggests that, uh, Moses, I got an idea. We can compromise here. Why don't you just make your sacrifices right here? And Moses says, well, that's not going to work because we're going to sacrifice animals that you worship. What do you think they're going to do to us if we kill their idols? He says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but um, so Pharaoh says, okay, go. So Moses prays. The flies are gone. Conclusion, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. He didn't let the people go. You knew that was coming, right? He's not going to get this. Fifth plague, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very, this is particular language here, very severe plague upon your livestock and that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels and herds and the flocks. This would be like mad cow disease times 10. Every animal dies that's out in the field. He kills them all. He brings death to them. And it's interesting, um, this is the first time mentioned even in this story narrative with Pharaoh that, that uh, God ever brings death and it's the first time that he ever brings kind of a destruction to Pharaoh's world. Property that Pharaoh owned. Someone said, making the, the, the observation, I think it's true, it's only fair, if, if Pharaoh won't let the possession of God go, that God was gonna come after Pharaoh's possessions. I think that might be true. Again, it's a judgment of God on the deities of, of Egypt, Egyptian gods and goddesses, and perhaps you've ever studied Egyptian history or culture um, in the past, but most of their gods and goddesses were depicted as livestock. Cattle, you know, horns. You've seen this stuff. Even in kind of pagan kind of movie scenes, it, it is sort of their deal. Truly, truly sacred cows is what they had. And uh, they believed that all these cattle um, were responsible for life itself. So what does God do? You really want to give them sovereignty? They're all dead. Now what do you do? Again, I would tell you, beyond just being gracious to Israel, by getting them freed eventually. He's being gracious to Egypt by undermining all of their false gods, which is sort of what he does with us too, to be honest with you. It's not like we sit around and make a list of weird things like cattle gods or fly gods or snake gods. We don't do that stuff. We have our other versions, money, success, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes God just goes, no, not today. Not that one. When you're all said and done, your contentment, your joy, your happiness is in me and nothing else. And he's good to do it. He's good to do it. Um, so I want you to notice again in verse 4, God makes a distinction. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. <laughs> so that nothing that, of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Do you, do, you think, do you think Pharaoh saw this? 
Do you think he looked over at Goshen and saw, oh my gosh, there's a difference between us and them. God is bringing weight or something's happening to us and something's not happening to them. I just want to repeat this line so it sinks really deep into our bones. Remember, grace is shown to God's people. I want you to own that. So, what happened? What did Pharaoh do? Conclusion, verse 7. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He didn't let the people go. Anybody surprised? Okay. He wouldn't let him go. Here's the sixth plague, boils, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and, and let Moses throw them in the air. In the sight of Pharaoh, it shall become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. And it happened. Painful sores and boils over the people of Egypt. And um, again, many, 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 many gods in Egypt that were supposed to ward off sickness and disease. And nothing could stay the hand of God. And everybody was sick. And there wasn't a god or goddess that could solve the problem. They were left to kind of look themselves in the eye. And I don't know, there's probably a group of them at this point looking at Pharaoh going, okay, come on, Pharaoh. Every time you say no, this ha something bad happens to us. Um, but you know the conclusion. It's the same conclusion as always, verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he didn't listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Seventh plague, hail. Verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. And the phrase actually is better said to your heart. God says, I'm coming after your heart, Pharaoh, and on your servants and on your people. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the very earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Because you're still exalting yourself against my people and you will not let them go. Wow. Verse 17, or verse 18, behold, about this time tomorrow, as I, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall. Such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field that is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And that's exactly what happened. Hail. Fire, hail, bad, bad storm, and it killed everything out in the field. Again, the Egyptians had God's plentiful gods over the sky, wind and rain, and there was no God they had that could stop this. God was proving his, part, his point that he alone is sovereign. There is no one else that is. But I want you to notice something. God's doing something in the hearts of some. Verse 20, here's what it says. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Somebody is getting the point. There are parts and pieces of the Egyptian people that are going, okay, I see enough. I don't need any more. I'm going to obey the word of God. In a simple form, all they did was say, put the animals in shelter. Stay in shelter and we will live. It's interesting, we're going to come back to this, and I think I said it, but uh, Neil's going to be dealing with the Passover, and what we'll see at the end of that story, when Egypt uh, lets Israel go, and Israel's leaving towards the promised land, the text says something very interesting. It said a mixed multitude went, 
In other words, God is saving more than just Israel here. He's working on some Egyptians, and some of the Egyptians go with, which is always true. God saves who he wants, when he wants. He's looking at culture and people and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my grace there. I'm going to open their eyes there. And some of these Egyptians who have suffered now through four or five plagues are going, okay, there's a God, and it's not the ones we've been worshiping. So I'm just going to do the very simple thing. I'm going to obey everything Moses says, and maybe I'll survive this. God's working on their hearts. But notice again, God makes a distinction in... Uh, what verse? Verse 25 and 26. And the hail struck down everything that was in the field in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree in the field. Here it is. Only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. You should be able to repeat this line, but I'm going to say it over and over again. God's people get grace. And Egypt kept seeing it and kept seeing it and kept seeing it. I don't think Pharaoh ever concluded what we're talking about here. Um, so, but there is what looks like a moment of sanity, even if it's temporary sanity for Pharaoh, verse 27, and Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned. I, I, I get it, I've sinned. And the Lord is right and I and my people are all wrong. Okay, sounds good, right? It sounds right. Verse 30, Moses says, but as for you and your servants, I know you don't fear the Lord yet. I can read between the lines. I know you don't, and it's proved true. Look at the conclusion. Look at verses 34 and 35. And when Moses saw that the rain that Moses had prayed to go away and the hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Here's the eighth plague. Chapter 10, 1 through 7. It is the plague of locusts. And the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the, the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither you, your fathers nor your grandfathers have ever seen from the day they came on the earth to this very day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And that's exactly what happened. Pharaoh's servant said to him, verse 7, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve their Lord, their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is in ruins? Which is a key point of all this. And we'll come back to that uh, in a week or so. Nevertheless, bottom line is, Pharaoh's getting the point because he's tired of the, the, the pressure, but he's not getting God. And so Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, I'm tapping out. Now tell me again who's going. Who's going to leave? And Moses says, well, we're all going to leave. We're going to take the kids. We're going to take the cows. We're going to take the sheep. We're going to take the goats. We're going to split all of us. And Pharaoh goes, over my dead body. Not going to happen. And again, he hardened his heart. Look at the outcome. Verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't let the people go. Okay, one, one last plague, the 10th plague. Chapter 10, verse 21. It's the plague of darkness. 
Again, I keep asking you this question, when would you quit? I'm going to suggest to you that you would never quit unless you got something special from God, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. You ever had that kind of darkness? I've been in a cave before, like in Tucson, Mount Lemmon, there's caves there. Anybody been in those caves? It is dark, and it's so dark you can feel it. You put your hand in front of your face, you can only feel the temperature you cannot see. That's the darkness that God brought on Egypt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt three days. Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Don't move. Can't see. (laughs) Interesting. Notice again the distinction, verse 23. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. You can now say it, right? God's people get grace. That's what happens. Pharaoh says to Moses, okay, 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 go, go, but leave your flocks. <laughs> what do you think Moses said? Mm-mm. We don't compromise with God, so no. And you know the outcome, verse 27 and 28. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, okay, whatever you say. And there you have it. An absolute pedal to the metal four chapters of just brutal plagues and trying to get a person and a people to see God in all of it, to obey the word of God, and it never quite happens. And so you can leave there and go, man, there's a, there's a ton here, and there is. There are so many different like bunny trails I want to go down and talk about, but we have a few minutes left, so let's, let's just make sure we don't miss the big ones, the big ones in this story. And let me just suggest to you, if you want to put it in a category, the big ones are all to do about God's sovereignty. If you miss God being God and in control of all things, you miss the big punchline of chapters 7 through 10. Here's the first thing. God is sovereign over men's hearts. You can't deny it from this text. I'm certain you noticed how many times I read in this narrative that Pharaoh's heart was hard. It's like all the time, every bit of the time. At my count, I think there's 14 references to the hard heart of Pharaoh. Um, There's four in chapter 7, there's three references in chapter 8, four in chapter 9, three in chapter 10. So there's 14 that I can see from the ESV version of a mention of Pharaoh's heart, okay? Now, I understand there are different versions of that mention, so let's just deal with that uh, and be forthright. Um, Sometimes when the text is talking about Pharaoh's heart, the verb tense that's used about it is ambiguous. It, It doesn't really imply whether it was God acting on Pharaoh to harden his heart or Pharaoh acting on his own heart to be hard. It just kind of says neutrally, Um, his heart became hard. So let's just leave that one alone and say I'm not certain in in much clarity without context to know exactly precisely what those things are saying about who is hardening. Um, I think the context will say that it's God, but I'll come back to that. The other versions or, or references to his heart are clearly Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It just comes out and says it, that he is making the action. But then there are five other references where the actor is God. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So if you're here and you're thinking, what's going on? You're, you're thinking right. There are questions, reasonable questions to ask and answer. Um, and one might be this. 
Does God truly harden hearts and then punish people for their heart to be hard? That's a fair question, right? And if you're a thinking person, you probably would come to that question. And then another question that's been asked a thousand times in, in, in the history of the world, is God unjust? Because that whole thing you just said, Tim, sounds like that's not fair. So is God not fair? Is that a reasonable question? I'm going to give you the answer bluntly. No. God is never unjust. Ever unjust. In fact, the Apostle Paul, if you want to turn there, chapter 9 of Romans, is using this very illustration of Pharaoh and Egypt and this issue of God's justice and fairness and his sovereignty in his discussion in chapter 9. In fact, he brings up one illustration of a forefather of, uh, of Israel at this time, Jacob and Esau. And, and Jacob and Esau were brothers, uh, twins, and God just simply says, thought I favor one and I don't favor the other. And in, in kind of right after that, Paul then moves into, in his mind, the exact also representation of God's sovereignty in people when he talks about Pharaoh, okay? And he's pretty clear in chapter 9, verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? Answer, church. That was about this much conviction. Is there any injustice in God? Okay, good, good. Because you're right. That's what Paul says. By no means. For he says to Moses, get ready, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion or work, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, here's the example, for this purpose I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Um, Here's what we have to understand about justice and God and sovereignty over human hearts, mercy on whom he has mercy, compassion on whom he has compassion. In order for a charge of injustice to stick, you'd have to convict God of being um, unfair to the innocent. Innocent is a key word. Pharaoh isn't innocent. He's a brutal dictator, oppressive to a people. He killed children, for crying out loud. He's standing there in the midst of obvious God and shaking his fist at heaven and saying, you're not there, you don't exist, and I will not submit. He's not an innocent character. So for God just to be involved in somehow Pharaoh's condition, isn't that he's being unfair to him? But I have to admit that if God were to judge anyone who was sinless or withhold himself from anybody who said, I want you, well, then you got something that might stick. But we already know the answer to those questions, don't we? Because Romans, Paul tells us the answer to that. No one seeks God and no one does good. Not a single one. Nobody. You and I, I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're a junior high kid. I don't care if you're a 90-year-old person. You know fundamentally this doctrine without ever reading the Bible. You were born a sinner. You don't wake up to sin. You're just wired to sin. You're wired to self, and you're wired to just pride, and you're wired that way. We're born that way. You raise a child ever? You don't teach them to sin. They come that way. Original equipment, right? <laughs> OEM. No one does good, not even one. No one seeks God. So let me ask another provocative question. If God is involved with Pharaoh's heart, then let's just do this. What does God have to do to harden a heart? Reasonable? 
I'm going to give you a simple answer, and I'm certain there's way more sophisticated, smarter people than I. I'll give you an answer. God has to do nothing. Nothing. If man is truly born dead and blind, sinful from birth, at war with God, then you need to understand something, that unless God acts on the behalf of the other person with grace, all we do is stay dead. You can't make yourself alive without him acting on your heart. And that's the truth of the gospel. All God does to harden Pharaoh is withhold grace from Pharaoh. Don't illuminate his eyes to see his hand moving in all the plagues and all the ways. Just stay away from it, God. Don't go there and open his mind to see those things. Do nothing. All he has to do is just pull back the restraints and let the natural inclination of the human sinful man run its course. And you know what happens with that. We know this. I mean, we talk about this all the time. Mercy and grace aren't earned. They're not deserved. They are simply gifts given by the will of the giver to the undeserving. And that is what we all in here need to see. We start as undeserving. And if we believe, if we confess, we know we've received a gift we did not earn. That's grace. That's mercy. When, when God gives sinners over to the rebellion that they want, they are hardened in their unbelief. Do you understand? In fact, to be honest with you, uh, that's what Paul says in Romans 1 as he lays out for us our doctrinal thesis, our confession of the problem in God's solution. In chapter 1, he talks about the issues of the heart. When he says, for although they knew God, and even sounds like he's reading Pharaoh's journal for crying out loud, for even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Can we replace that word with hardened? Is it both and? Dark can't see, hard won't respond. Therefore, God gave them up. You want it, you can have it. Paul says, gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Whatever your heart wants, you can have it. God doesn't resist you. He lets you have what you want. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Sound like Egypt? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Sound like Egypt? And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind that thinks as it ought not to think. If you simply want a great biblical explanation of what happened to Pharaoh, God was doing his thing and he just didn't intersect Pharaoh with sight. Pharaoh was hard. Pharaoh was sinful. He was, he was the problem and God did not extend sight. Now, I understand when we're talking about sovereignty, specifically over people's souls, that um, we have a tendency to trip over wrong questions. Our minds are flooded with questions, but can I boil down all the questions? Not that they're not important, not that they don't have some merit. I want to boil it down to the most important question today. The question you should ask whenever you stand face-to-face -face with God's sovereignty in all things, specifically the hearts of men, the only one real question to ask is this. Will you believe wouldn't that be fair to say to Pharaoh? I mean, for crying out loud, you got frogs. You got flies. You got dead cattle. You got hail. You got bloody rivers. You got, will you believe now? Will you believe now? No? No? Well, then you can have what you want. You can have what you want. Because the promise of scriptures, and it's so encouraging, and here's what you need to know about God. He never turns away anyone who will come to him. You want him? You want God, you can have him. 
If you want God, that's grace. You can have him. He never turns anybody away. That's what Jesus said himself in John 6. Whoever comes to me, I will never, ever, ever cast away. Ever. That's a promise from him. You can, you can bank on that. There's something else this story reminds me of, and we're out of time, and I'll briefly mention these things. God is sovereign over sin, and he steers it towards his own purposes. You notice in this encounter with Pharaoh that there's never a place where God looks surprised or overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, didn't see that coming? This is not good news. In fact, is that the text tells us that it's, it's in every rebellion of Pharaoh that God is steering it towards his purposes. I already read this passage to you, but he says, so that I can be made known and so that I can be praised. That's his intention. Same thing that Paul says in chapter nine, exactly same thing. So here's the deal. Sometimes, and this is where it fits in your life, sometimes our reactions and our worries about the sin in our culture, the craziness in our culture, and the sin and the craziness in us says more about our lack of faith. And, and we preach the ultimately wrong sermon to those who are around us. God is not surprised by sin. He is not surprised by evil. He can, he can steer it towards his glory. He can take it and say, what you, what you meant for wrong, I will do good. What you think is thwarting my purposes, you have no idea how sovereign I am, and I will turn it and twist it into a glorious message. That's, that's what he promises. So when you get carried away with, oh my gosh, the culture's falling apart, don't freak. Don't freak out. When we say sovereign, I don't even know how to tell you how sovereign he is over every story on the planet. He is over all things. He is not frustrated. He is not worn out. He is not overwhelmed and he's never surprised. He's steering all of it to his glory. Make sense? One, one other thing. God is sovereign in rescuing his people. You can't avoid that in the story of Israel in Egypt, right? He is sovereign. That's the story of Exodus and by the way, it's the story of scripture. It's clearly the story of the gospels. God is sovereign He's made a promise to redeem his people to the sacrifice of his son and watch this church. It has happened. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's happened. And therefore there'll be no separation for those in Christ. Nothing, nothing in all the universe can separate you, child of God, from the hand of God. Nothing. He is sovereign. Aren't you glad? He's, there's not a story that he gets frustrated with. He's, he's in charge. And all this is supposed to do, honestly, is make us praise him and thank him. So let's do that. Let's pray. God, we do thank you. As much as we can muster, we thank you. The story reminds us of how desperately broken we are. And without help, we are stuck in that position. So God, we, those of us who are your children, um, we call ourselves children of grace we understand we didn't earn, we didn't learn, we didn't know anything. You invaded time and space and you opened our eyes to see and believe. And so we give you all praise, glory, and honor. God, we will live as people of faith knowing that there isn't a story on this planet and even in our own lives that is somehow thwarting your plan. You're sovereign over all. And so we do praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.